Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. We've made it to February. I'm almost caught up on reading the Reading Soon books. Kendi's stamp from the beginning will be finished by the next episode. It's the only one that hasn't of those featured books. Between the episodes, I also discovered the wonderful world of Hoopla. So this is something you should check with your local library to see if they have it. It allows you to borrow books, movies, TV shows, graphic novels, and music. They are borrowable for different periods, but it is a nice borrowing system, something I'm certainly enjoying. I, my library has six credits a month, so I'll be able to read a lot more graphic novels this year than I had originally expected. Through that same library, I've also been able to enter a winter reading challenge. Are any of you trying a winter yearly reading challenge? Let us know which ones you might be trying. I know Book Riot has year, does one yearly called to Read Harder that has people experiment with different types of literature. But anyway, let's move on to our books. So our first featured book this episode is The Corpse Washer. It is by Sinan Antun, an Iraqi poet, novelist, scholarly, and literary translator. He is currently an associate professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University. He holds a BA in English from the Baghdad University and a doctorate in Arab literature from Georgetown and Harvard. He has published three collections of poetry in Arabic and four novels. This version of his book was published, uh, was translated directly by him. I don't remember exactly where I first came across it, though I do believe it was mentioned in Lalami's Conditional Citizen. The Corpse Washer is about Jawad Kazim, who was born to a traditional Shiite family of corpse washers and shrouders in Baghdad. He decides to break with tradition and become a sculptor. Jawad enters Baghdad's Academy of Fine Arts in the late 1980s, but then the course of events in Iraqi history through the 1990s and the 2003 invasion disrupt his plans. So my thoughts on this book are it details Jawad's full life and how his outlook has been shaped by the course of events in Iraq. So there's the family strife. Uh, he has two parents and at least two siblings, an older brother who is training to be a doctor and an older sister. But of course, there's the, the, the many wars that took course during Iraq's history. So there's the 1980s conflict with Iran. There is the invasion of Kuwait and the United Nations, mostly US-led coalition to force the Iraqi army out of Kuwait. And then the uh, economic sanctions in the 1990s through to the US-led invasion in 2003. So all of that occurs throughout the length of this book. Each, each chapter is told in short segments alternating in time. So we have sections from Jawad's youth, from his, his uh, growing, uh, growing up and going to school. And finally, in the present at this point was the, of uh, the book's writing was the 2003 invasion. It was the present at that point. And it is something of a tragedy. 
it shows what daily life might have been like for those living in Iraq. So it talks about the difficulties finding the daily needs, intermittent access to electricity, and the, the people who would just disappear. And there are some beautifully thought out passages on death and trying to live. So we see Jawad throughout his whole life trying to make his own, uh, his own way, following the traditions of his family, and also trying to find love. Book two is Seasons of Migration to the North. It is by Tayeb Saleh, a Sudanese columnist and novelist. He graduated from the University of Khartoum with a Bachelor's of Science, and he wrote a weekly column for more than 10 years for the London-based Arabic newspaper, Al Majala. He also worked for the BBC's Arabic service and later became Director General of the Ministry of Information in Qatar. The last decade of his working career, he held various posts at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris and served as the UNESCO representative in the Arab states of the Persian Gulf. This is his best-known book and is considered one of the most important works of Arabic literature from the 20th century. The particular version I read was translated by Dennis Johnson Davies, a white Canadian-born writer and translator who translated more than 25 volumes of short stories, novels, plays, and poetry, and was the first to translate the work of Nobel laureate Naguib Mahfouz. This was a New York Review Books edition, and those usually feature introductions by contemporary writers, and this one was written by Leila Lalami, and we featured her before, but she is a Moroccan-American novelist, essayist, and professor, best known for her novel The Moor's Account, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize Fiction in 2015. Most recently, she published Conditional Citizen in September 2020, a book we discussed last year. So the library I work at had a listing for this in the catalog, but I never was able to locate it in the stacks. It seemed to have gone missing, but it was, I received a copy this holiday season as a requested gift. Seasons of Migration in the, to the North is focused, well, the, the summary of it is, after years of study in Europe, the young narrator of Seasons of Migration to the North returns to his village along the Nile in the Sudan. It is the 1960s, and he is eager to make a contribution to the new post-colonial life of his country. Back home, he discovers a stranger among the familiar faces of childhood, the enigmatic Mustafa Said. Mustafa takes the young man into his confidence, telling him the story of his own years in London, of his brilliant career as an economist, and of the series of fraught and deadly relationships with European women that led to a terrible public reckoning and his return to his native land. So already from that description, we see this could be viewed as a semi-tragedy. Uh, it is told in the present through the narrator's perspective, but then also through the past when Mustafa shares his history with the narrator and later through letters or objects to help flesh out this remembered tale. Like The Corpse Watcher, it is told in episodic segments. So we... we see the narrator returning home, meeting Mustafa, and then we move on to some time later when the narrator meets with Mustafa and they have a few interactions before the, they begin to discuss Mustafa's past and how it relates or parallels the young narrator. 
It is an exploration of the impact of colonialism on both those colonized and the colonizer. And through the characters in the book, we see two major perspectives. We see a pre and mid World War I through Mustafa's experience when he went to London to study. And we also see the beginnings of this post-colonial period with the narrator and Mustafa in what at that time was the present day of the novel. Both main characters are changed by their education, kind of in the liminal space of no longer fully belonging to the Sudan, but also not fully being accepted as educated Europeans might be. So we, we see them both responding to how this has changed their lives and that they do it in different ways. So we see Mustafa in the, this small rural village, whereas the narrator pursues a, a career within the government. One of the, the key features or ways that the cultural clash is discussed is through sexual violence and the treatment of women. So we see Mustafa sharing his encounters in London with, with the white women, and the narrator discusses his uh, relationship with those in the village through this. And one of the key points of the book is sometimes not making a decision is the same as making one. Book three is The Cold Millions. Jess Walter is a white American writer. He has published seven novels, a collection of short stories, and two works of nonfiction, one co-op. In 2006, he was awarded the Edgar Allan Poe Award for his book Citizen Vince and was a National Book Award finalist for the novel Zero. His 2012 book, Beautiful Ruins, was featured in the New York Times' 100 Notable Books of 2012. If you like the descriptions of Cold Millions, I'd certainly encourage you to look up Beautiful Ruins. So I could, was aware of this book since it was announced for publication as having read some other books by Jess Walter. He is an author. I keep an eye out for any time they're releasing a new book. The Cold Millions is about the Dolan brothers, who live by their wits, jumping freight trains and lining up for day work at crooked job agencies. While 16-year-old Rye, short for Ryan, yearns for a steady job and a home, his dashing older brother, Gig, or Gregory, dreams of a better world, fighting alongside other union men for fair pay and decent treatment. Enter Ursula the Great, a vaudeville singer who performs with a live cougar, and who introduces the brothers to a far more dangerous creature a powerful mining magnate who will stop at nothing to keep his wealth and his hold on Ursula. Dubious of his brother's idealism, Rye finds himself drawn to a fearless 19-year-old activist and feminist named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, her passion sweeping him into the workers' cause. But a storm is coming, threatening to overwhelm them all, and Rye will be forced to decide where he stands. Is it enough to win the occasional battle, even if you cannot win the war? So if that wasn't obvious, that was the official book description from the publisher. Uh, and this book is a historical fiction. So some of the characters are based on historic personalities, such as Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, but certainly fictionalized to fit the narrative of the story. And it is centered mostly in Spokane, but the characters do travel to nearby areas, particularly when giving speeches or for other reasons. And it is a story about between differences between the rich and the poor. So Rye and Gig are the last surviving members of their family and have moved on to Spokane in the hopes of finding work and jobs. Whereas the 
mining magnate as a large controlling interest in the town and can see whether or not they are to be employed and can use his financial means to have them perhaps do things they might feel conflicted of. And it starts with blood, as the very first section is told from the perspective of a police officer. Uh, and it ends with, well, you'll have to try it yourself and find out. But it is a coming-of-age tale mostly centered on Rye. Despite this, him being the central character of the narrative, it, Jess Walter did write with many different perspectives, as featured characters have chapters from their own viewpoints, helping expand the, the feeling of the town to make it feel a more realized world, and also to help explain some motivations that might not be directly apparent from Rye or Gig's perspective, but Walters allows the, the characters to speak for themselves. One of the particular things I enjoyed about this book, or liked, was a coda epilogue written by one of the characters looking back on their life, remembering this, this very short but important time on their life and reflecting on what happened to everyone else. Our fourth book and first nonfiction is The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of American Supermarkets. It's by Benjamin Lohr, a white American author who graduated from Columbia University with a degree in environmental biology and creative writing. This is his second work of nonfiction. In 2014, he published Hellbent, Obsession, Pain, and the Search for Something Like Transcendence in Competitive Yoga, which helped break the story of the issues with sexual assault within the Burkham yoga movement. I found this one as a featured new book from one of my virtual libraries. And as you'd get from the title, it centers around the questions of what does it take to run the American supermarket, both in the present and it does look at some of the history, or at least in the tw mostly 20th century, of how the supermarkets became what they did. Particular questions of focus are how does the food get on the shelves, who sets the prices, and who suffers the consequences of our increasing demands for efficiency? So a full little disclaimer here, I worked in the grocery industry for almost a decade, and I'm also the one in the family who does the shopping, in part because of that experience, but also because my partner does not like the smell of the stores, which is how Lore begins this book discussing, when he went undercover, sort of, to work at Whole Foods and wound up in the seafood department. So the book is a blend of investigative journalism, history, and lifestyle philosophy and social science. The rough outline of it is a general history of the grocery store with a large focus on the creation of Trader Joe's, contemporary shipping practices seen mostly through the experience of one trucker, the struggle to introduce a new food to the market, uh, in this one he interviews extensively an entrepreneur trying to market slossa, which is coleslaw salsa mix, his own experience working at Whole Foods, what free trade and free range can really mean. He joins some uh, uh, free, free range activists who break into the uh, factory farms just to look at conditions and get some footage to share. And also the life at the bottom of the commodity chain as shown by, a trafficked, by, by trafficked immigrants in Myanmar and Thailand. And the later of which also talks about how shrimp have been factory farmed 
So the whole book is an example of if you take a look at any system, you will find either something you don't want to know or the fact that someone is being exploited for your financial or your company's benefit. Uh, and this was also written pre-COVID. I certainly would expect some of it to change based on that, particularly with the employment of the different peoples. Uh, and lore is a a very much more free spoken than what I was used to from Michael Pollan. Uh, definitely read through the footnotes. Uh, there's a lot of dark humor, cursing, and a general disbelief in some ways at some of the things lore discovers. So for those curious of how supply chain works, this could certainly be a book to help you illuminate those. Our final book of the episode, or in this case, a novella, All Systems Read, The Murder Bot Diaries Number 1. It's written by Martha Wells, who is an American writer of speculative fiction and nonfiction. She has been publishing since 1993 for both adult and young adult audiences, as well as media tie-in work with Stargate and Star Wars. The Murderbot series has received two Hugos, two Locus, and one Nebula Award, all for Best Novella. And I'm not really sure where I first came across this. It could have been through Tor's mailing list, who has published the series, or just a general recommendation popping up through Goodreads. But while looking to figure out what the book was about, I saw Louis, Lois Bujold give a very favorable review of it, and uh, as a big fan of the Miles Vorkosigan books, I thought I'd give this a try. And the official summary of, of All Systems Red is, in a corporate-dominated spacefaring future, planetary missions must be approved and supplied by the company. Exploratory teams are accompanied by company-supplied security androids for their own safety. But in a society where contracts are awarded to the lowest bidder, safety isn't a primary concern. On a distant planet, a team of scientists are conducting surface tests shadowed by their company-supplied droid, a self-aware SEC unit that has hacked its own governor module and refers to itself, though never out loud, as Murderbot. Scornful of humans, all it really wants is to be left alone long enough to figure out who it is. And for this novella and the series, it's told predominantly from the perspective of this human-robot hybrid murder bot. And he is a misanthrope who just wants to be left alone to watch TV. Unfortunately for him, his humans have gotten into trouble and actually see him as a person who could help them. And of course, he feels out of his depth, but keeps faking and hoping for the best. So this is a, a short but good humorous action-adventure, technological, future-world exploration sci-fi. And as even in possible, the possible future, corporations are still mostly concerned with mostly their bottom line. And I finished a journal, well, not journal, but Murdered Bot Diaries number two earlier today, and it continues with the theme of Murderbot trying to figure out who they are, but also really just stay away from humans and do what they want and learn as much about themselves as they can. That's all the books for this episode, so stay subscribed or keep an eye out for our next episode later this month where we will finally talk about Stamped by Dr. Kendi. 
But we will also talk about these two books. They are in the reading soon or in progress, and they are both somewhat inspired by Valentine's. So the first one is Ghoster by Jason Arnup. Kate Collins has been ghosted. She was supposed to be moving in with her new boyfriend, Scott, but all she finds after relocating to Brighton is an empty apartment. Scott has vanished. His possessions have all disappeared, except for his mobile phone. Kate knows she shouldn't hack into Scott's phone. She shouldn't look at his Tinder, his calls, his social media. But she can't quite help herself. That's when the trouble starts. Strange whispering phone calls from numbers she doesn't recognize. Scratch marks on the walls that she can't explain and the growing feeling that she's being watched. Kate refuses to leave the apartment. She's not going anywhere until she's discovered what happens to Scott. But the deeper she dives into Scott's digital history, the more Kate realizes just how little she really knows about the man she loves. And then our other Reading Soon featured book is Land of Aching Hearts, The Middle East and the Great War by Laila Tarazi Fawaz. The Great War transformed the Middle East, bringing to an end 400 years of Ottoman rule in Arab lands, while giving rise to the Middle East as we know it today. A century later, the experience of ordinary men and women during those calamitous years have faded from memory. A Land of Aching Hearts traverses ethnic, class, and national borders to recover the personal stories of the civilians and soldiers who endured this cataclysmic event. Among those who suffered were the people of Great Assyria, yeah, comprising modern Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine, as well as the people of Turkey, Iraq, and Egypt. Beyond the shifting fortunes of the battlefield, the region was devastated by a British and French naval blockade made worse by Ottoman war measures. Famine, disease, inflation, and an influx of refugees were everyday realities. But the local populations were not passive victims. Fawaz chronicles the initiative and resilience of civilians, entrepreneurs, draft dodgers, soldiers, villagers, and townsmen determined to survive the war as best they could. The right mix of ingenuity and practicality often meant the difference between life and death. The war's aftermath provided bitter, proved bitter for many survivors. Nationalist aspirations were quashed as Britain and France divided the Middle East along artificial borders that still cause resentment. The misery of the Great War and a profound sense of huge sacrifices made in vain would color people's views of politics and the West for the century to come. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.